In-flight icing. It's one of the most potentially deadly situations a pilot can encounter, even if the aircraft is certified for flight in known icing conditions. As student pilots, we're taught to avoid it. Even professional pilots have misjudged its danger with fatal results. Sometimes the pressure to complete a mission will negatively affect a pilot's decision-making. Today we'll meet a pilot who had two encounters with ICE and he'll share his stories on this episode of I Laughed. I learned about flying from that. Hi, I'm Rob Ryder and welcome to episode 63 of Flying Magazine's I Learned About Flying From That Podcast, brought to you by Avemco Aviation Insurance. Today, my guest, Pat O'Brien, former flight test engineer for the U.S. Navy, recounts two encounters he had with ICE. One in a plane that was certified for FIKI, flight and known icing, and another encounter in an aircraft not certified for it. Fortunately, both situations had positive outcomes. We'll learn about his very interesting career and how he handled his ILAFT events after this message from Avemco Insurance. Avemco is the only aircraft insurance company that lets you call them directly. In fact, they want you to call them. They love talking about airplanes, and if you've got a squawk with your insurance company, even if it's with Avemco, they want to hear about it. It's that direct, one-on-one -on -one personal contact that sets Avemco apart. Visit avemco.com slash flying, or call them today at 800-338-8705. Say you're an I learned about flying from that listener, and you'll save 5% on your annual premium. Now. I learned about flying from that. Today on iLaft, I welcome Patio Pat O'Brien, who, wow, what an amazing career you've had, Pat, which led to eventually flying some airplanes and dealing with ice. But before we get to the ice, I got to go back to what you started when you were at Ohio State University because you had a very, very interesting journey to get up to the point where you were flying that Seneca and the Aero Commander. Welcome to ILEFT, Pat. Well, it's my pleasure, Rob. Thanks. I've enjoyed uh, all of your uh, previous uh, shows and, and a lot of fine people on there, up to Mike Goulian and some other people. So I feel very honored to uh, participate and uh, thank you for the opportunity. You are very welcome. So glad you're here. Pat, you wanted to get into the uh, into the service, into the Air Force, and and fly, but but something happened uh, during those years at Ohio State University that prevented you from doing that. Can you take me back before that to to the the germinations of your desire to fly and what happened and where that eventually led you? Because I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about that because it's a very interesting journey. Absolutely, Rob. Uh I, you know, growing up, uh, I always loved aviation, but I was working my way through school. I paid for high school. Uh, I was a private high school and I was saving for college. So I really didn't have any money to fly. So I decided that while well, I was good in aeronautics, um, math and science, and so I would uh, go and get an aeronautical engineering degree, which was what was recommended to me. And so I decided, well, I would also get an ROTC scholarship and go fly for the Air Force. And, and have them pay 
Absolutely. And so that was my solution to everything that uh, I wanted to do in my my career. Unfortunately, I I had uh, gotten all the way through all the tests, everything except for the medical, which is the last thing. And I had had a bad back as a kid. And as soon as they heard that, it was like, thank you. No, we don't want you. That was my freshman year. And at Ohio State. And so, you know, my grand plan of learning to fly and do all that, you know, kind of disappeared. And so I looked at alternatives and I figured, okay, I'm just going to come up with another alternative. I'll make this work some other way. And what was that? Well, I I worked three jobs that summer. Um, My dad was uh, electrical. I worked for New England Electric. So I worked for him part time. I worked at a racetrack. and doing a number of different jobs in New Hampshire. And then I also worked at a restaurant uh, three nights a week as a busboy. And so I earned enough to go back the next year and uh, start to take flight lessons. And I got my uh, private pilot license in January after um, that year or so. Was that at Ohio State University Airport? It was, yep. Oh, was she, oh my yep, gosh. In the, the Mighty Musketeer. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. After you graduated, well, there was some interning. And and I think back, Pat, at towns like Wichita, Seattle, uh, Farmingdale, New York, where the Grumman Iron Works. But there was still a bunch of cool stuff going on at North American and then North American Rockwell's plant in Columbus, Ohio. There were some interesting airplanes that were designed there, like the T-2 Buckeye and the A-5D or the A-3J Vigilante. But there was another one that you were involved with, an airplane not a lot of people know about. Yeah, it was pretty obscure. And uh, I got an internship between my junior and senior year to work on the XFV-12A V-Stall fighter for the Navy. And uh, it was a a concept for a V-Stall fighter that uh, they were uh, blowing the air through the wings, so bleed air and... They just never could get enough uh, uh, thrust in the engine uh, to be able to make that concept work. They had a whirly rig, which was a, a, a wing with a, an engine and uh, all the systems on it, and it just uh, rotated around a post uh, at, at Columbus uh, Airport there. And uh, But, you know, it never made it, and it eventually uh, died. But I went to work there, and I did structures, which was a whole other <laughs> job for me, so... So that went away. You graduated from Ohio State University and then decided, what were you going to do with your degree in aeronautical engineering? Right. I, I, I thought hard and long about, did I want to try to go someplace else? And I decided, no, I, you know, it spent three years in this program. I didn't really want to do something else. So I just decided a flight test was what I wanted to do. And uh, so people said, well, you're crazy. You can't go to flight tests. You got to go work someplace and um, I decided, well, you know, I'm going to give it a shot anyway. So I applied for a bunch of different jobs. I got, I got a number of different offers, but I got two flight test opportunities. Uh, one was with the Navy at uh, Patch River, which is the Navy Flight Test Center, and the other was with Boeing. And uh, I went to visit uh, the Navy at Patch River, and uh, during the interview process, they said, well, you know, if you come here, you get to fly in the jets. And I thought, well, he like, the Air Force didn't want me, <laughs> but the Navy <laughs> seems to want me, so I'll take this opportunity, and and I did. And uh, it was probably one of the best opportunities uh, of my lifetime. So, <laughs> But you remained a civilian. You never did join the Navy, did you? 
You know, I, I uh, was probably, as the Air Force had told me, I was disqualified from any uh, uh, military service because of my back issue. So, uh, so yeah, I went as a civilian. I worked uh, for NAVAIR, uh, Naval Air Test Center at the time, um, and I, I worked in uh, carrier suitability. So we did all the catapult launch, arrested landings, uh, automatic carrier landing systems, all of those tests from aerodynamic to structural. In the F-14 Tomcat and others? Uh, all others, yeah. At the time, uh, you know, carrier suitability branch had F-14s, they had F-4s, A-6s, A-7s, A-7s S-3s, uh, C-2s, uh, RE-5, um, F-8s, uh, F-4s, everything. That's... And these guys flew all kinds of different things. <laughs> Did you log all of that stuff? I, you know, I was probably too young and stupid to even realize what I had, but so I didn't. I probably flew more in the F-14 than anything. Uh, and the reason for that is this was 1974. Uh, it was inertial navigation system. Uh, they needed somebody in the back seat to align the inertial navigation system. So they said, well, Pat, you know, if you learn to do this, uh, you know, you can fly a lot. And so, because there weren't many Rios there. And so they needed somebody to do that. And so I volunteered to do that and it worked out great. How's your back? Uh, the back, uh, you know, I, I noticed that it was a problem, especially on long flights. Uh, the interesting sideline to that, uh, when I had the back problem as a young kid, I, I went to one doctor and then I ended up going to this gentleman, Carter Rowe in uh, Boston. And he looked at my x-rays and he said, oh, you have this spondylolithesis of the fifth lumbar vertebrae. And the way they discovered that was on the bomber pilots in World War II because they were sitting in one position for a long time and it exaggerated this condition. And so he knew everything about it and that's how we found out about it. So I kind of got disqualified because of uh, bomber pilots from uh, World War II, which is kind of an interesting connection. Wow. Well, I'm glad that you were able to still get those hours in. We've got, we could talk for hours on that with the number of airplanes that you got to fly in. And that was, a, that was a, you just ran down the list of, of pretty much every major carrier based aircraft the Navy has had since 19, since the 70s. Yeah. And it was a treat for me. I mean, as a civilian to fly in uh, the Navy jets uh, was, and, and even to fly to the boat uh, was fabulous. I think, uh, you know, some of the highlights uh, of that, the, TA-7C, the Navy decided they wanted to make a two-seat trainer, and so they did that. We had a whole test program, and we had one hour left, and uh, my uh, test pilot said to me, he said, Pat, we got one hour left. What do you want to do? And I said, well, George, I want to go uh, drop bombs and shoot the gun. And he laughed at me, and he said, okay, let's go. And so we went out, and there's a rusted ship in the Chesapeake, and so he would do a run on the boat, and then I would do one, and then... Uh, he would do one and I would do one. So that was, uh, you know, a special treat for a civilian to be able to, it was live gun uh, practice bombs. Pretty cool stuff. <laughs> well, we've got to fast forward now to 1981. Okay. And you've got, a, you've got a multi-engine uh, rating evidently, correct? I know I was working at it. I went to work for a company after I left the Navy. I went to work for a company, Foster Ed Air Data. Uh, and they made RNAV equipment, so moving the BORs uh, to be able to navigate directly. Area navigation. And, and so I was one of uh, two salespeople um, uh, the company had. And uh, so I had already got, um, I had my private pilot license that I got at Ohio State while I was at 
uh, Maryland to the Navy. I got my commercial instrument ticket. And so when I got to fly with uh, Foster Air Data, I flew Mooney's, Bonanza's, uh, Aero Commander, which we'll talk about later, and um, I had the Seneca. And uh, I was the, my, the other salesman uh, was an instructor, and so he said, well, let's get some time in the Seneca. And so uh, we flew from Columbus, Ohio, up to uh, DuPage, uh, outside Chicago, uh, in the Seneca. And uh, so that was my time in the Seneca, my first flight in the Seneca. And that's not a long jaunt, fortunately, from there. That's... No, no, it isn't. Well, what happened to you on that day? Because they, the guy put you in the left seat, obviously. Right. And, and icing became an issue. So let's talk about what happened on that day, on that particular flight. Uh, you know, I mean, of course, uh, sitting in the left seat of a Seneca for the first time was all new to me, and so I was trying to absorb all that. We uh, went to DeKalb and, and made a, a, a call with, uh, you know, one of the avionics shops to uh, convince them to use our products. And then we jumped in the airplane because our next stop was Rockford. And that's a sure, that's only 40-some miles. Yes, it is. We didn't check the weather at all. We had filed IFR, didn't check the weather at all. Uh, just jumped in the plane because we had just arrived and we were, you know, there maybe an hour and jumped in the plane and uh, we're going off to Rockford. And uh, we started picking up ice like you wouldn't believe. And so on my second flight to be picking up ice in the Seneca was uh, pretty eye awakening. <laughs> and um, uh, we were, you know, popping the boots and we were getting rid of the ice. But boy, as soon as you pop it, uh, it was right back there. And so for a a short trip like that, it, it was pretty intense. Was the Seneca you were flying, I'm assuming, because it had boots, it was cert certified for flight into known icing, Fiki? Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah. Were you leaning on the guy who was in the right seat, who was really qualified on the aircraft? Did you turn around and go back? What was, what was going through your head and through your body at that point? I, I didn't really lead on him as much as, uh, you know, I was a student and, you know, he was the instructor and I wasn't particularly scared. And it was like, okay, we're just doing this and we'll take care of the ice and get on and fly the ILS or whatever the approach was. And um, he said, okay. Uh, and it got pretty hard to see out because all that there was was that rectangle, the old rectangle. Oh, the heated the part side. of the windscreen. Right. Right. And so uh, he said, okay, uh, you fly the airplane, I'll take care of the power. And I said, okay, that's fine. And so, you know, we proceeded uh, on the approach uh, into the landing. And just before we came in to land, um, there, there was smoke started to come up between the console, between the two of us. So there was something had sharded out. Oh, no. So we had not only the, the ice, the new multi-engine pilot, but then smoke. Um, and so we landed... Uh, taxied in and we both said okay we're going right to the bar <laughs> so i think it was a, a holiday inn we went right to the bar and uh just uh surprisingly there was all kinds of other corporate pilots that had all kinds of hours and they said to us uh yeah that was probably the most ice they've seen in ages oh my gosh and so we thought oh we were pretty lucky did you notice any degradation of performance of the airplane while you were picking that up? Did you have to keep more power on it to keep your speed up and get, maintain altitude? Not really. The boots seemed to be working pretty well. It's just we had to, you know, use the application of them quite often in, in uh, 
to be able to keep keep that from building up too much. Did you ever discover what the smoke was coming from in between you on you no, and your? No, I can't remember, but I think you know there was some short or something in there. I I don't particularly remember what it was, but we had it taken care of and were able to continue on our trip the next day. So, I'm glad that the smoke and whatever caused it didn't prevent you from continuing on your mission. But adding the possibility of an onboard fire when dealing with a significant buildup of ice had to have added to the pucker factor. It'll be good to hear what you learned about flying from that. Let's move on now to 1981 and your I laughed moment in the Aero Commander. With the Aero Commander, uh, uh, well, first, uh, back to the company. Um, you know, we had two salespeople and, uh, you know, the, the push was to visit as many avionics shop as you could. And so on a typical week, I would leave on like a Sunday night or a Monday morning, fly all week and come home Friday night or Saturday morning. And so you generally would schedule, you know, two, three, four, I even did five stops in one day uh, to different avionics shops to convince them that they should, you know, order our products uh, for their customers. And so it, you can imagine if you're in a city, in this particular case, it was Des Moines, uh, if you're in a city and you see weather coming and it looks like, oh, that's going to really screw up two or three days of my trip and you've got a week planned with all these stops, uh, the pressure internally is pretty uh, pretty aggressive to, okay, we got I got to figure a way to make this work. I got to go. And uh, so I, uh, even though the weather had reported some ice um, and the the uh, aero commander was not uh, certified for uh, flight into known icing, I uh, decided that I, and, and it was a front coming in, I thought that I could get out before the front got there and uh, be able to go on my way uh, and be able to continue the, the, the flight for the week. Was this going to be a long flight from Des Moines on this, this, this leg where you started to pick up the ice? I am not uh, entirely sure. I think it was to Omaha, so it wasn't a particularly uh, long trip. You were flying solo in the Commander? I was, yes. I was solo. It comes to my mind that workload becomes an additional issue. Where did you encounter it and how did you handle that? I, I think that the tops were reported uh, to be about 9,000. So I thought, well, you know, that that would be pretty easy to get up to 9,000. And uh, so I, I kept climbing and climbing, and the wings were okay. Um, I didn't really pick up much ice, if any. Um, and uh, But 9,000 came, and it was still in the clouds. Uh, 10,000 came. It was close to 11,000, as I recall, that I finally broke out in <clears throat> into the sunshine on top. And I thought, oh, okay, I made it. Hence, I, I went to push the stick forward, and it didn't move. <laughs> so and yoke forward, you could you had no elevator control at that there, point? You there still was wanted no, to climb? Right. Correct. And so uh, what had happened is that the, the elevator had frozen over uh, in the climb, and I have ice there. So I Immediately thought, okay, what are my options? Because otherwise, in that high pitch attitude uh, or climb attitude, uh, I needed to do something. And what I uh, uh, decided was that I'd just use trim, uh, to, and hopefully that would be able to uh, pitch the nose over. And so with the judicious application of trim, I was able to get the airplane to, uh, to level out. And uh, 
fly at altitude, uh, and I thought sublimation would eventually take whatever ice was on there, and I'd be fine. The sun finally melted it, and you had freedom of, of movement of the elevator. I did, yeah. So I was, I was very lucky. What about the descent? Uh, the descent, it wasn't IFR, and it wasn't an issue uh, once I, I got to Omaha or wherever I was going at the time. So it was just a climb out. And I was getting out in front of all the weather. That was the whole goal of what I was trying to do. Two encounters with ice, two safe outcomes, even with a little smoke in the cockpit on one of those flights. Patio, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll discuss what you learned about flying from that. Since 1961, Avemco has been the only aircraft insurance company that lets you speak directly with the decision maker, empowered to approve coverage based on your unique situation. Visit avemco.com slash flying or call 800-338-8705 for a quote and save an instant 5% for being an I learned about flying from that listener. Save even more for most recurrent training, a new rating, or participating in fast team wings. Just ask an Avemco Aviation Insurance Specialist how you can qualify and how much you'll save. Now, back to iLaft. We're back with Pat O'Brien. And Pat, you learned some incredible lessons about ice and flying from those two flights we've discussed. But something that was eating at me as I was listening to you it sounds to me like you were basically, as you had to work from one place to another and make a lot of calls, you were like a daytime freight dog. Probably uh, very similar, yeah. Um, you know, the Seneca... Was there a lot of pressure? Because those guys always had pressure on them. Right. There was always pressure. I mean, uh, you know, we would typically uh, depart Columbus, Ohio on a Sunday night or Monday morning and fly uh, two, three, four... Uh, avionics shops per day uh, and come back the week, Friday night or Saturday morning. And so, as you can imagine, if you planned out a whole week of three, four or five visits times five days a week, you had a lot of trips that you had to do. And if you couldn't make it, uh, you know, you said, oh, geez, this is really going to hurt, you know, and I'll have to go back and redo the whole thing. And it just would, uh, the schedule would just not uh, work. So, yeah, so there was a lot of internal pressure uh, from myself to make that happen because I was a new employee and so I wanted to make it work. And then the company really pushed uh, for us to, to meet the schedule and make all those calls. If you didn't, did they accept your uh, judgment calls on weather or were they upset with you if you didn't get there? Uh, I would say uh, th there was a little bit of uh, upset in there. Uh, in some of them. And, you know, I think in one particular time, which was kind of my defining moment to, I decided I needed to leave was uh, I had fuel in the cockpit of the aero commander and, or smell of fuel. And I just put it down in Arkansas and decided, you know, I need to figure this out. And they were rather upset with me that I had put the airplane down and, and wanted maintenance to look at it and figure out what was going on there. But, you know, it was my life and I had two daughters that were going to be born in subsequent years. And so, uh, you know, I just decided that, hey, I need to do something else. There you go. Let's go to the first flight on in the Seneca when you, uh, when you were picking up the icing in an aircraft that was 
certified for flight and known icing conditions. What were the lessons or the takeaways? What did you learn about flying from that from that flight? I, I would say two things, Rob. Um, I think the first is, you know, obviously always check the weather. Just because you fly into a city and uh, uh, are there an hour and then you take off, uh, you know, the weather can change. And so, and we all know this. I think we all avoid it at times or, or don't pay attention to it as times uh, uh, that we need to. So I, I think that would be the first. The second, um, even though you're uh, a student uh, of somebody who is the instructor, uh, I think you still got to act like your pilot in command. And you still got to do the things that you think are right uh, as well, or at least discuss them or bring them up. And I think that, uh, you know, had I said something about, hey, don't, Shouldn't we go check the weather? Or, but I think you get under the assumption that okay, you're under a, a, a CFI, a mentor pilot. Uh, yeah, he's going to tell you if something's wrong and you shouldn't be doing something. And I don't think you can assume uh, that. I think you always need to do your own diligence and make sure that the flight uh, conditions are going to be safe for you uh, as you progress up. Great lesson indeed. <laughs> Trust but verify, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about when you got in the Aero Commander, weather was an issue. And this is an airplane that, unlike the Seneca, as you told me, this Aero Commander was uh, one that you had to hand fly all the time. Now, that increases the workload significantly. Let's talk about that. Yeah, it's uh, it was a great airplane. Uh, you know, it probably wasn't an ideal airplane to be making all these uh, calls. I had flown the, uh, we used a Moody 201 before that, and that was a fabulous airplane with a great autopilot, Aztec 55, and it was just a very dependable airplane, and if you need to have somebody work on it, it was great. The Aero Commander was just a, a little bit of a, a challenge, and yeah, the, the autopilot uh, was an issue. I mean, my territory was western half of the United States, so I could leave Columbus, Ohio, hand fly to Memphis, get out fuel, and then go down to Houston or Dallas to start my trip for the week. So, you know, that's, I think, probably close to eight hours of flying and hand flying, all of that. So it, it was it was a real challenge. Was the airplane easy to trim up and would it stay there or did you have to be uh, cognizant of pitch and, and bank all the time? Yeah, it was a very uh, stable airplane. Uh, I mean, you know, it was in a lot of respects a lot similar to a Bonanza. I think it had the same engine um, at the time. Um, it was faster uh, and it was really quite a capable airplane. Uh, just not great for uh, depending on making a schedule, a very tight schedule, and making stops on a weekly basis. It was that was a challenge. What were the lessons you learned from that flight, going from nine thousand to eleven thousand and having the elevator freeze? Yeah, I, I I think obviously that you know a healthy respect for ice, especially if you're in an airplane that isn't uh, certified for uh, flight into known icing, and. Uh, I know that uh, several years later, after I bought a Columbia, uh, I mean, I even was flying that, and I, it, it had <clears throat> TKS system, and so I, it wasn't certified into known icing, but I could have got out of icing in a, a situation. But the Columbia incident was always in the back of my mind, so rather than go up at altitude and come down through the potential icing, uh, I just decided to stay low and not have the situation uh, occur that uh, I would pick up icing. So I, I think it did provide some some good lessons for me 
healthy respect for icing, which we should all have and, and, and we don't have often. Do you fly in the winter a lot still? Uh, I did when I lived in uh, Park City. I lived in Park City for quite a while, and so I based the airplane at uh, Heber uh, there. So I, I flew to Columbia uh, quite a bit uh, in there. And I, I, you know, I pretty much uh, try to stay out of the ice. I mean, I might come down through some layers uh, that had the potential for icing, but, you know, I, I basically would try and stay around. I certainly would not charge off, like I know some Cirrus pilots I've seen that have uh, flight into known ice and and, you know, I, I'm just amazed that they would charge off into the, the gray, cloudy sky uh, with that much ice that's out there. So Even with a wet wing. Yeah, it just, uh, I mean, life's too short, and I care about my life more than I care about uh, doing that. And, you know, it's, I, I don't have to meet schedules, so, uh, which I think is a good uh, thing to have, a good, healthy respect for ice. I understand you also have the RV grin. <laughs> Did you build this RV that you got? Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, it, it actually was built by a gentleman uh, that worked on the shop floor at McDonald Douglas in St. Louis. Goodness. Uh, and uh, he had built an RV6, and then he built this RV8, and I think he became uh, a little bit afraid of a tailwheel airplane. So uh, it sat for 10 years, and uh, so and it had five hours on the engine, and uh, so didn't even get out of phase one. I was going to say that's not even ready to be run full out yet. No. Uh, so I, uh, I I purchased it knowing that I might have a little bit of trouble with the engine. And, you know, three years later, I've got 450 hours uh, on that airplane. But I bought it because I wanted to race at Reno uh, after being off for 25 years of not flying. After I left Foster Air Data, I um, decided I wanted to try to fly at Reno and race. And I needed formation experience, so I looked around at uh, different opportunities, and uh, there was a bunch of uh, RV pilots that flew on a weekly basis, and so I bought the RV-8, and uh, fortunately, I love uh, formation flying, so I do it every week with these guys, and it's the, the biggest thrill uh, that you could ever have flying, and the RV-8 is a perfect airplane for that. I find the same thing in the 7. I love flying formation stuff. It is a, it is a wonderful skill, and I had no idea how challenging it was. Absolutely. You can never rest. Well, great lessons to be learned. Pat O'Brien, thank you for sharing those with us, and thank you so much for being on iLeft. Rob, thank you. I, I uh, always listen to you and read a lot, and I think it's incumbent upon uh, all of us as pilots to always keep advancing our knowledge and to keep making us better pilots. So uh, I, I think that it, the more we can learn, the better pilots we can, but it never stops. We always have to continue uh, to learn uh, each and every day, and uh, shows like I learned about flying from that uh, certainly help you think about things so that you don't make the same mistake that somebody else. So I really appreciate that you've done this and continue to do this because a lot of valuable lessons that you're sharing with the pilot community. So thank you very much and thank you for the opportunity today. You are so welcome and that's a perfect way to wrap up the episode. Pat's lesson learned about getting a weather briefing, even if it's only a short flight, may be as important as dealing with icing. I appreciate very much his being a guest on the podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you'll subscribe and share it with your friends. 
I Laughed is available wherever you get your podcasts. We drop episodes every couple of weeks so you can hear the first-hand accounts of the flying lessons that sometimes only experience can teach. In addition to subscribing, I'd like to hear your I Laughed story. You may have learned some lessons that would be good for all of us to hear. Send me a synopsis and we'll check it out. My email is rob at flying.media. Rob at flying.media. The I Laughed theme and commercial instrumental music for the podcast was written and performed by Rob Potorf. Lisa DeFries is the executive producer of I Laughed, and Julie Boatman is editor-in-chief of Flying Magazine. For Avemco Aviation Insurance and Flying Magazine, fueling the passion for flight since 1927, I'm Rob Ryder. Catch you next time on I Learned About Flying From That. <laughs>